song. I usually have some young children here, or some younger, they're um, like 10 years old and stuff like that, and they like to sing, and they sing really good, and these guys are on the drum with us and learning. So I need your help. We're going to do this in a good way. We're going to sing a song, and it goes, Machito, say that. Nana. Nana. Cuckoo Seminole. I need everybody to hear. I know everybody's a singer, so you guys can do this. Go. Way high, yo, oh, way. Try that. Does that sound good? All right. So we're going to sing that, and then when I point at you, that's what your, your part is going to be, okay? Everybody in this room knows that my voice will carry all the way to the back, even when I'm just talking to you face to face. Good morning. All right, seriously, I know we're not in church. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Bob Beattie with the American Association for State and Local History, um, and I just want to say thank you. Um, please give them another round of applause.
What you've just heard is an honor song from the Little Thunderbirds that is often performed at the opening of events such as powwows. If you listened carefully, you heard words of the Ojibwe people. Um, and this is a group from the Red Lake Nation, John Oakgrove. John, thank you very much for leading us there. This is the second or third time that I've engaged in group singing at an ASLH conference, probably you too. It's usually dealing with civil rights veterans of some renown. We've done this several different times over the years. This is the first time it's been American Indian, and um, I won't vouch for the quality of my singing or yours, but his was pretty good, was it not? So uh, welcome, We're we have a program, you know, we have a superstar in the room, and each of you are superstars in your own way as well, but we have something special that we're going to kick off with, uh, your council, your representatives um, uh, to, on the leadership of, of this organization, uh, Norman Burns of the council, the incoming ASLH treasurer in about 24 hours, uh, officially gets the stamp of approval, has uh, an announcement to make. And I will do the follow-up that I promised you I would do earlier. My apologies for that. Come on. I'll wait. <laughs> no, no. Whenever anybody walks on stage, you, you're required to clap. You guys know that, right? All right. Just to make sure. It fills the silence. Did I do that correctly? Thank you, Bob. I do have a special announcement today. As some of you are aware, ASLH has been around for quite a while. As a matter of fact, next December in 2015, it'll be the 75th anniversary of the American Association for State and Local History. And some of us have been around just about that long, it seems like. Uh, it is a great organization. Whether you're new to the field or you've been around the block a few times, like I have, SLH has always been there for us. It's always been that compass, if you will, that place that brings us home. It's our home for history. And so that's why I want to talk to you about a special initiative that uh, we're kicking off. Uh, you're going to hear more about a lot of different ways we're going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of SLH. But we want to start today uh, by talking about a special campaign that we're going to do. Oh, gosh, here's another campaign. I know what you're saying. Uh, but we want to, in this 75th anniversary year, we want to celebrate both our past achievements of, of SLH, but we also want to embrace the work that we're doing in the present for this home of history. And we want to envision what the future of ASLH is going to look like. You kind of see it up there glimpsing the future. We give history a future, and that's what we're hoping to do at ASLH. When you think about a home for history, you think about a family. And what does this home do? It's a nurturing place. ASLH is a nurturing place for the history profession. It's a way for us to be nurtured on core principles of what we do. It's an intellectual home for us. But any good home opens the door, and it allows those family members to go out into the world and help change that world and transform it. That's what we need to be doing in the future of ASLH. We need to stop staying home. We need to get out into the world. We need to celebrate what we do, and we need to do it in a big way. That's why I'm very pleased that your ASLH Council is taking a bold initiative today that we're going to announce. As a matter of fact, I'd like to have our council members stand. Uh, most of them are here on the, on the front two rows. We're here today to let you know that we're launching a 75th anniversary campaign to raise $75,000 this next year. 
to celebrate our past, yes, but to embrace the present and then envision a bold new future. And it started yesterday with a 100% commitment from your ASLH council for $75 each. Now, I know what you're saying. Eh, that's not a lot of money, $75. Well, you know what? There are 1,035 participants in this conference. Is that correct? Wow, 1,035 participants. Council has 100% commitment to this campaign to raise $75,000. So here's what I want to embolden you to do today. I want you to make a decision about, if you're new to the field, what you think SLH can do for you. If you've been in it for a while, what it has done for you, what it will continue to do. And I want you to make a commitment beyond your individual membership, beyond your institutional membership. If every person in this room today committed $75, we would have our $75,000 campaign. So we're going to give you an opportunity. Whether you want to do that at the conference uh, uh, this week uh, and uh, by leaving a check or a credit card or fill out a pledge form or you want to wait on a letter that will be arriving in the annual fund, I want you to think about that commitment. I want you to think about the past, the present, and the future uh, of ASLH. And there's a little saying that my grandfather uh, used, to, used to say, opportunity knocks but once. Regret opens the door every day. <laughs> Opportunity knocks. Are you going to open it today or are you going to regret that we didn't take ASLH into the future? I want you to give your council applause again for leading the way and we want your feedback and we want your input on important ways that we can change ASLH. I think you see that we're transitioning, we're going in new directions and we need your input as members and we want your support and we're going to do it together. Thank you. Thank you, Norman. And what I had promised Norman and I didn't write down was um, we're taking money, actually, this very minute. So if you want to stream on out of here this very second and, and head down two flights of stairs at registration, we will take checks, we will take credit cards, we will take pledge forms. Of course, we want to capture you before you leave St. Paul while you still have it on the mind. And we will, and, and frankly, 75 is that sort of minimum suggested donation, as a lot of you do in your institutions, right, as we go. Uh, Thank you, Norman, to the council on behalf of staff and, and the membership of, of which many of us are uh, as well. We appreciate the commitment and support greatly. Now to the fun, second fun part of the day, or the second fun part of um, this conference. Uh, we are going to roll into, into the talk. I'm going to take a quick moment and thank Andrea Kyer, who's going to come up and um, introduce some person from St. Paul who's just, we found him, we said, hey, come in, he's from the Twin Cities, you know, no one knows, that's why this room's packed, is to listen to, listen to me, I suppose. Um, two things I want to tell you before we, two housekeeping things. Number one, we're recording this, um, so we ask you, if you do ask questions, there are microphones in, in the two aisles, on the outside aisles, if you would please use the microphones, it helps everybody in the room hear it. The second thing is, Garrison Keeler will sign books afterwards, and that will be right outside, so when we stop, you're going to watch some people hustle him out of here as if it's, as if it's uh, Secret Service or something like that. I wore a dark suit on purpose because we want to get him to book signing so that he can meet and greet and do the things and, and we can all go. So with that, I will turn over to Andrea Kyer, who's done most of the work in pulling this conference together. Thank you. Thank you. And first of all, welcome to Minnesota and to all of you attending AASLH. We're really proud and happy 
that you are here. As Bob said, my name is Andrea Kyer. I'm Deputy Director External Relations here at the Minnesota Historical Society. And we're just so happy and delighted you've been able to join us here in St. Paul. This is an amazing opportunity for us to show you how history matters. History abounds in Minnesota and also in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area from uh, prohibition and gangsters to F. Scott Fitzgerald, from Mill City Museum to historic Fort Snelling, and of course from Bob Dylan to Prince. We hope you've taken advantage of one of the many tours that we have uh, set up for you here in the Twin Cities. We are also part of an exciting arts and music scene, exceptional shopping, award-winning restaurants, wineries, craft breweries, hiking, biking, and walking trails. Of course, we boast the head of the mighty Mississippi River. So I'd just like to take a moment to thank the host committee members uh, from the Minnesota Historical Society, Angela Castleton, John Crippen, Sherry Gebert Fuller, David Grabitsky, Wendy Jones, Jessica Cohen, Ben Leonard, Caitlin McGowan, Jean Nierenhausen, Laura Geffrey Rick, Jackie Swanson, and Laura Turner. Also from other institutions around is Lori Larson from Visit St. Paul, John Lindley from the Ramsey County Historical Society, Stephanie Madden from Visit St. Paul, Todd, now I'm going to, I, Mahone, I didn't say it right, but from the Anoka County Historical Society, we were rehearsing last night, so now I said it wrong. Uh, Wendy Peterson-Born from Carver County Historical Society, Mai Vang from Discover Minnesota, the Discovery Center, and Bill Witt Wittenbrenner from Augsburg College. A special thanks to Bob Beatty and uh, Bethany Hawkins for their assistance, and of course, Program Committee Chair Aaron Carlson-Mast from the Executive Director of the Lincoln College. Lincoln Cottage, and it was Aaron's idea for the theme, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, which is so fitting here in the Twin Cities. So a big thank you also to our generous supporters, History IT. History IT is a technology and service company that provides clients with brand new approaches in making historical collections more usable, meaningful, and accessible. So can we just give a one big round of applause for all those people? It takes a village, obviously, to put this on, so thank you. So the most frequently asked question of me over the past 16 months of developing this conference, uh, whether I was in Alabama, Washington, D.C., or other meetings around the United States and Minnesota, I heard one question, and I heard it loud and clear. And does anyone know what that question is? Can you get Garrison Keillor to speak at the AASLH conference? So... I am happy to answer that question with yes today. Garrison has often been described as one of America's most beloved radio hosts and celebrated humorists. He is the founder and host of A Prairie Home Companion, celebrating this year its 40th anniversary on the radio. He has authored 19 books of fiction and humor and is the editor of the Good Poems Collection. Most recently, stories, essays, poems, and personal reminiscences from the sage of Lake Wobegon in the Keeler Reader. Garrison has been honored with the Grammy Ace, which is the award for cable excellence, and the George Foster Peabody Awards, the National Humanities Medal, and election to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Now, 
I am pleased and proud to present radio host, author, and the, uh, radio host and of the Prairie Home Companion and Writer's Almanac, acclaimed poet, humorist, and of course, St. Paul bookstore owner right up the street, Minnesota's own Garrison Keeler. Thank you so very, very much. I'm just sort of stunned up here by the beauty of this singing that we heard over here. John Oak Grove and these uh, kids from Red Lake. John is getting into a, a high tenor vocal range that uh, I've always wanted to get into. And it's a beautiful thing and also very fitting. Very fitting meeting here in a hotel uh, on the corner of Kellogg and Wabashaw. Wabashaw over here, named for the, uh, the great Sioux uh, chief of southeastern uh, Minnesota territory uh, in the early part of the 19th century. A peaceful man, a great diplomat for his Sioux people who did his very best to negotiate something with the federal government he was told at first that the Europeans would not come across the river and that that belonged to his people, but the river was not wide enough to, to, to discourage them. They came across. He was then promised a reservation, but the, but the land was never, never ceded over by Congress. He was promised a large sum of money. He kept on negotiating in good faith until the Sioux Uprising of 1862, which was the great tragedy of his life. He went into exile in Nebraska, on a reservation in Nebraska, I believe in Santee, and spent the rest of his life, died right around the time of the Little Bighorn, spent the rest of his life in mourning for the terrible things that had happened to his to his people. And as we did with so many, so many people whom we cheated and, and treated uh, treacherously, we then named a street for them. <laughs> All told, he would probably rather have had the money, but <laughs> at least we've made a gesture in Chief Wabashaw's direction. I want to welcome you all to uh, St. Paul. We are not a hospitable people, and uh, uh, we, uh, we try to be, but we don't really mean it. Uh, we have an idea that we were not your first choice. Uh, and probably Chicago was, or Minneapolis, God help you. And, uh, and we have a feeling that you have come and that, and that you will, uh, and that you will look down on us. And uh, so we want to look down on you before you can look down on us. A sort of, sort of preemptive um, uh, sense of superiority. I, however, am very honored uh, to be here and to be old enough now to be of interest to historians. <laughs> I am 72, and what I now know about history is that some of it is memorable. <laughs>
And, uh, and what is not memorable, they try to teach you, but it just does not stick. <laughs> History is local. It takes place in a particular place. And when you try to write cultural history, history about the great broad sweep of events, you are probably going to be writing about half fiction. You are probably going to be writing about the 1920s as the Jazz Age, which it was in Manhattan and parts of Chicago. But in the rest of the country, many more interesting things were happening than alcohol and music. You may be writing about the 1950s as the era of rock and roll, and you may write that Elvis uh, changed America or that Jack Kerouac did, and that the 1960s were an age of protest, which they may have been for some people, but not for most people. And for every beat poet, there were 10,000 people who found other meanings in that era. The real story of the 50s and 60s was the great boom in higher education made suddenly available to a large swath of our people, and thereby millions of people found themselves boosted up into the middle class, including my parents, and they liked what they found there. They were not ready to drop out. They had just arrived. <laughs> And Elvis and Jack Kerouac did not have much to say to them. Just down the river from here, uh, about, a, about a half a mile, is a lake called Pig's Eye Lake. It's actually kind of a backwater uh, that's been made into a lake over the years. And here in St. Paul, most St. Paulites know that this town was first known as pig's eye, which sounds better in French, Louis de Cochon. <laughs> the name comes from Pierre Pig's Eye Parent, who was a French fur trader. He had a bad eye. And he sold whiskey. He sold whiskey to the Indians and also to the soldiers at Fort Snelling. So he was around when the fort was built in 1819. The fort is down where the Minnesota River flows into the Mississippi. If you flew into the airport, your plane probably came in low over the Minnesota River, and, uh, and then the bluff came up to meet you, and uh, it made you nervous. And uh, if you drove into St. Paul from the airport, you passed right by uh, Fort Snelling as you came across the bridge on, into St. Paul onto Fort Road. Now, Pierre Perrin uh, was French-Canadian, and the French-Canadians had found a place here in Minnesota long before the Anglos arrived. Many of them had married Ojibwe or Dakota women. They had picked up enough language to get by. They were businessmen. They, 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 they were... They were in transportation. They, they were fur traders. They, 
they ran uh, carts, enormous, enormous carts up the, up the Red uh, River Trail up to, up to Pembina. And, uh, and, and so they were, they were in business. They, they found a way to survive out here. They, they were acculturated people. The soldiers who came into Fort Snelling in 1819 uh, were aliens, innocent aliens from, from back east somewhere. They didn't really belong here. The fort was built in order to demonstrate to the French Canadians and the Ojibwe and Lakota that this was America. This was part of the Louisiana Purchase, and we, and we owned this. But Pig's Eye Parent was a nuisance. He operated a still in the little town of Mendota, which is across the river from Fort Snelling. And in the end, the soldiers kicked him out. And he simply moved downstream, down not far from here, near Fountain Cave, just, just uh, up the river from downtown. And he operated a tavern. He was the only for a time, only European in St. Paul. And so he, the town was named for him. It was called Pig's Eye for about 10 years until Father Lucien Galtier arrived around 1840 and he built a chapel and he could not bear to worship the Lord in a town called Pig's Eye. <laughs> and so he renamed the town a little river town for the Apostle Paul. Very few St. Paulites know about Frank B. Kellogg, for whom this street out here is named, this Kellogg Boulevard. goes up past the library, up past the Science Museum, up past the, uh, the hockey arena. This is not the guy who invented cornflakes. <laughs> this was a self-taught lawyer, had a practice in St. Paul, did well, was elected to the U.S. Senate, and he became Calvin Coolidge's Secretary of State. This was after the United States had decided not to enter into the League of Nations. And as a gesture toward internationalism, Frank B. Kellogg negotiated with the French Foreign Secretary, Aristide Briand, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. You were tested on this in high school and you've forgotten all about it. <laughs> and there's no reason you should remember it because it is essentially meaningless, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. It was signed by 62 countries, including all of the major European powers, in 1928, a pact in which they agreed not to use warfare to settle disputes, not to use warfare to advance national aims or to gain territory. They all signed it in Paris, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and in 1929, Frank B. Kellogg of St. Paul, Minnesota was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and came back to St. Paul, an old man, to live in his mansion up there on Fairmont Avenue. You can go see it if you want, it's on the National Register. And, uh, and, and to watch the world go to pieces. Within 10 years after the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize, 
Japan had invaded Manchuria. Italy had invaded Ethiopia. Russia, Soviet Union, had invaded Finland. And Hitler was poised to invade Poland, as was the Soviet Union. And World War II was about to, about to break out. We don't honor Frank B. Kellogg because it didn't really happen anyplace. It was just a bunch of men in a hall of mirrors in Paris, men in morning coats and top hats, signing a piece of paper. And so very few St. Paulites can tell you who Frank B. Kellogg was. About six. <laughs> Did this old lawyer really imagine that this piece of paper would usher in an era of international peace. If so, why should we build a memorial to a fool? Pig's Eye, on the other hand, was a guy who, who lived on the river, sold whiskey, and he may have been a public nuisance, but he was offering people something that some of them dearly wanted. Many of them had not tried whiskey before they arrived, and so they had no idea what good whiskey should taste like. <laughs> but once they got to Minnesota, they needed something to cushion their misery, <laughs> and he was there to provide it. The Kellogg-Briand Pact didn't really happen. It was just a token, whereas Pierre Parent was actually of use to people. And so we all remember him today. And he had a great nickname, Pig's Eye. And ever so often when we St. Paulites are disappointed with our city and what happens here, we refer to it as Pig's Eye. Up on the hill, Crocus Hill, is Frank B. Kellogg's home. But nobody's going to turn this into a museum. It just would take too much explanation. <laughs> and in the end, in the end, why bother? But we're always happy to tell you the story of Pig's Eye Parent, a reminder to us in St. Paul that this city was not founded by idealists. More likely than a Kellogg uh, museum up on Crocus Hill, we, we might make a museum out of the apartment building on Lexington Avenue where John Dillinger holed up with his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette. This was back in 1934, and where he got in a gunfight with FBI agents and St. Paul police who had come to find out who this was and escaped, he and Evelyn both, escaped this enormous ambush. How? We're not sure today. But there they were, John Dillinger, right up there on, 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 on Lexington Avenue. But he was only here for a month, and, and that's not long enough to establish residence. <laughs> a lot of famous people have come through St. Paul, but they, but they didn't stop or stay long. Mark Twain came, of course, but he went everywhere. And, uh, and, uh, 
Henry David Thoreau came in the spring of 1861. He was suffering from tuberculosis, which was called consumption at the time, and his doctor recommended that he come here uh, for his health. One of the very few times that Minnesota has ever been recommended uh, <laughs> as, a, as a healthful climate, uh, Thoreau may have been the last one who came here <laughs> for that. He came in May of 1861. And even though he was dying, he still took uh, copious notes and, and walked all around. He walked around the lakes of Minneapolis and took notes on, on trees and on, and on natives whom he found. And, uh, and he took a little trip up the Minnesota River. Uh, and, and then he went back to Concord and he died in 1860, 1862. We are unlikely to, uh, to, to establish a memorial to Thoreau. He has such a good one back at Walden Pond. We would only be a little way stop on his, on his journeys. F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, was born here, as everybody knows, in uh, September, September 24th, 1896, in a little apartment up on Laurel Avenue, uh, which is now owned by a consortium of his uh, fans. What they will do with it, I don't know. We celebrated his centenary in St. Paul in 1996, and uh, we renamed the World Theater the Fitzgerald Theater, which was very fitting, I think, and we, we put up a statue of him in, in Rice Park. You can go and, and see it. It stands on a pedestal at ground level in the park, and we discovered that Fitzgerald was five foot seven, and we wanted to make him a little taller. So we added about five inches so that he could just look people in the eye at least. And there he is. We wished that there were a big house he'd left behind that we could turn into a museum because he's so famous and, and, and he was a beautiful writer. But the Fitzgerald family was renters. They just left a whole series of apartments and, and one townhouse up on Summit Avenue, this little plaque out in front of him. And he left here in 1919 when his first novel was accepted by Scribner's. He took off as fast as he could and he took a train out to New York and Zelda met him in New York and they were married at St. Patrick's and they took up a life as famous first-name celebrities, like Sonny and Cher, like, like <laughs> Groucho and Harpo. Scott and Zelda, they had a big time, were great party-goers. They went splashing in the fountain of the Plaza Hotel, and they rode around on the roof of a taxi cab, and they were quite a sensation. And he earned $4,000 a story for the Saturday Evening Post. He was briefly wealthy or had the illusion of wealth, and then everything started to fall apart. Zelda was schizophrenic. She spent most of the 30s and 40s in various mental hospitals in Asheville, North Carolina. He was broke. He was borrowing money from people. He was deeply alcoholic. He bravely fought his alcoholism. 
He wound up in Hollywood trying to make a comeback. He was at work on another novel when he died of a heart attack in 1940 at the age of 44. This was his story. They only came back to St. Paul once after they married in 1919. They came back in 1921. He and Zelda, she was pregnant with their, with their child, Scotty, and they stayed up at the Commodore Hotel, and people in St. Paul were shocked that she still drank so much, and they were shocked that she had no idea what to do with an infant, and they had to hire a nurse to take care of this child. They rented a house up on Goodrich Avenue, and they lived there for almost a year. He wrote one of his greatest stories in that house, a story called Winter Dreams, which we in St. Paul love, and then they went back east, and they never came back. He couldn't say goodbye fast enough. When we did the centenary in 1996, there were still St. Paulites who remembered their parents telling them scandalous stories about Scott and Zelda. Their scandals still lived in St. Paul secondhand, and particularly the Christmas Eve when he came home from Princeton and he walked into St. John the Evangelist Church on Portland Avenue on Christmas Eve, so drunk he didn't know where he was, and walked through the congregation down to the priest who was in the middle of the homily and asked him where he was. And this story, more than The Great Gatsby, more than Winter Dreams, was what was remembered up on Crocus Hill about Scott Fitzgerald, even in 1996. Eventually, second-hand memories fade, and then third-hand memories are, are, not so, are not so vivid. And so his reputation clears, and we wish there were some better way to remember Fitzgerald. The Great Gatsby may not be a great novel, we argue about that, but it's still read, and it's read by, by, by high school kids who love the narrator, Nick Carraway. There are passages of Fitzgerald's prose that read to us today as if he were talking to us directly. He was an amazing stylist. And so there are young people still under his spell who come up to that neighborhood of St. Paul and they're looking for Scott Fitzgerald and there's nothing left of him. They're just a statue. But he's an author and authors live on in their, in their writing. Poor Frank Kellogg only has a street. And it's not the most beautiful street in St. Paul. You just need to go outside and you'll see that for yourselves. The History Center has turned the James J. Hill uh, mansion into, into a historic site. It's up there. It looks like a big train station, big stone pile uh, just across the street from, from, from the, uh, the beautiful cathedral of of St. Paul and right next door to the incredibly ugly headquarters of the Archdiocese <laughs> of St. Paul. James J. Hill was the founder of the Great Northern Railroad, lived for about 25 years in that house and died in 1916. 
But the railroad got merged into the Burlington Northern and the Northern Pacific, and then it got merged into the Santa Fe, and a man became president of this conglomerate railroad who did not care for winter. And so he moved the headquarters from St. Paul down to Fort Worth, Texas. And we've never forgiven them for that. It's a part of St. Paul history, but we don't know what to make of the James J. Hill House. You walk into it and you notice how bare it is and how dark it is. And you resolve that you should ever, if you should ever become a railroad tycoon and have a billion or two dollars, you would never ever build a house like it. I once was taken by a great northern janitor, this was around 1974, into the building the railroad had been in before it moved to its big headquarters on Fifth Street. This was down, just down on Kellogg Boulevard. It was an old building that the railroad abandoned around 1910. He led me into this building and turned on the lights, and it was all empty. And you walked into a room that was full of high desks, like draftsmen's tables, but they were for bookkeepers. High stools where men with green eye shades sat and kept the books, and the books were still there, gathering dust. You could open them, and you could see the florid handwriting of men writing with quill pens, the beautiful way they made fives and fours and sevens dipping down below the line, beautiful handwriting. This was the headquarters of the Great Northern Railroad and James J. Hill's modest office was there in the corner on the second floor. He liked to sit in his office with his windows open so he could hear what people were talking about on the street, hoping that they were talking about him. This building was a living piece of history. And I looked at it and I left. And the next thing I knew, the railroad had sold it and it's now condominiums. Ernest Hemingway came through in the spring of 1961. He was on his way to Rochester for electroshock therapy to try to cure his severe depression. He went down to Rochester and then he and his wife, Mary, drove out to Idaho, where he killed himself. He was 62. Robert Frost and T.S. Eliot came through, um, but they came through for money, and they were paid. They didn't come because they liked us, and <laughs> as soon as they got their money, they left, same as Houdini and Gorgeous George, the wrestler. They just came through briefly. Our most famous native is Bob Dylan, who was born in Hibbing, Minnesota, in 1941 as Robert Zimmerman. He spent a year or so at the university not going to classes and uh, Bob Dylan is a man who Minnesotans would love to honor because he would change your impression of Minnesota as a state of, of slow-talking Scandinavians. <laughs> but Bob Dylan has refused to go along with any attempt to honor or memorialize him. 
because when he left here, he reinvented himself when he went to New York in 1960. And he's not interested in remembering who he was before he was reinvented. When he went to New York, he told stories about himself as a, a criminal and as an orphan and as a migrant worker. He told some people he was from New Mexico. It just sounded better to him. He did not talk about growing up the son of an appliance store owner in a fairly prosperous mining town, Hibbing, Minnesota. Hibbing would like to make a memorial to Bob Dylan and have a parade, but Bob, who's a year older than I, says no. History is local. It happens in a particular place. My family has a distinguished history, but not here. Our distinguished history is out in Rhode Island, where our distant, distant ancestor, Elder John Crandall, was a close associate of Roger Williams in, in Providence Plantation's colony. He was, he was an enlightened man for his time, or for any time, who learned native languages and who was decent, decent to the natives. One of our relatives was Prudence Crandall, who was kicked out of Canterbury, Connecticut in 1833 because she had admitted young women of color to her private academy. She was a premature integrationist, and they kicked her out of town. Mark Twain was an admirer of Prudence Crandall, and so are all of us in my family. But unfortunately, we came west to the land of inebriation and the land of railroad tycoons and, uh, and the Indian Wars, and, and we lost our history. And now there are young people in Minnesota who bear the burden of having my last name. And they're asked about it often. And they're tired of it. <laughs> this is a huge come down from being related to Elder John Crandall or Prudence Crandall. But we just have to live with it. I once went to a reading, and I think of that listening to the drummers here. I once went to a reading by a man who had written a book about discovering his Lakota heritage. He'd grown up in a very lovely suburb of Minneapolis. And, uh, and one morning, uh, an Indian came to the door, and the man's mother spoke to him in a language the son had never heard her speak before. And so he discovered that she had grown up on the reservation in South Dakota. It was not easy for me to believe the author that, 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 I mean, here he was, he was 16 at the time. He couldn't have figured this out. But anyway, this was his premise, and you had to accept it. His mother had grown up on reservation in South Dakota at a time when the Bureau of Indian Affairs was trying to stamp out Lakota language 
and culture. And so the kids were sent off to mission schools. The parents had to make this terrible, tragic choice between keeping their kids at home in poverty and semi-literacy or sending them off to the nuns to get some chance to become middle-class Americans. So off to the mission schools they went. And so his mother left her tribal family. She moved to Minneapolis. She married a Swede, and she raised four kids out in the suburbs. The author was speaking up for his mother and how she had suffered. The problem was she was there in the front row. She was there, and she looked quite happy. And she was proud of her son, who had written a book after all. His father was there too, the Swede who the mother had married. And the author looked a lot like his father. He was very blonde and very Swedish. So there was a disconnect as he was trying to convince us of this family tragedy, these two old parents beaming up at him happily. The audience was very sympathetic, of course. They tend to be sympathetic to authors. I've experienced this myself over and over. <laughs> and, they, and, and, and they said, uh, how, did, how did you feel when you discovered that you were, that you were part Native American? Did you feel uh, different then from, from other people around you? And the author said, yes, he, that he'd always felt there was something different about him, and, and so the discovery of his Indian heritage was like finding the other half of himself. Well, everybody who's been a teenager has felt different from other people around him. This is one of the most, but anyway, never mind. He, <laughs> so we talked about cultural imperialism and, and, and what a pernicious thing this was, and, 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 and there were his parents who had given him a very nice life. The author was trying to make a case that they were victims of racism. And the audience was a white liberal audience, and they wanted to believe him. They really did. But something just didn't quite ring true. And then this tall man with braids stood up during the Q&A this tall man, and I recognized him as Clyde Bellicourt, one of the founders of the American Indian Movement. I'm a big admirer of Clyde Bellicourt. He's just a force of nature. He's impossible to ignore. He has this big, booming, baritone voice. Clyde Bellicourt has never needed a microphone and a loudspeaker in his life. He just has a magnificent voice. And the author sat waiting for the question to come, and the question never came. Clyde Bellicourt doesn't need to ask any questions. He has a lot to say about the history of the Lakota people, and he wanted to say it. I don't know if you've ever been to a powwow in your life, but if you have, you know that there's a different sense of time at a powwow, and 
Clyde Bellacourt was now in a powwow trance. He was beyond time. He was out in space somewhere. And gradually, this white audience realized that their lives are all bound up with time. They have kids. They have babysitters. They have jobs to go to in the morning. The store closes at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and so they started leaving. They didn't want to, but they started leaving, which didn't bother Clyde Bellacourt one bit. He had a lot to say. He went on. It was beautiful. I slipped out a side door. I saw no reason to stay except out of admiration. The historians in my family were local historians, and they told stories of our family and its checkered past. The Crandalls, the distinguished branch of the family in, in the colonies, except our branch of the Crandalls were loyalists, and so they left during the unpleasantness, and they, and they headed north to Canada, where they met the Keelers, who had come over from Yorkshire in 1777 to settle on these tidewater marshes that the British had driven, had driven the French Canadians, the Acadians, the Cajuns, out of, and they wound up down in Louisiana. They got the good land, and my people got this rocky, saltwater coast where they tried to raise hay for much longer than any sensible person ever would. <laughs> this was my family history. And they told me about my grandfather, James Keeler, who died nine years before I was born. He died at the age of 73, one year older than I am right now. I am gradually catching up with him. He did not marry until he was 46 years old. By the time I was 46, I had been married twice and was on my way to the third one. <laughs> so our lives were, were different. He grew up in New Brunswick where he was a skilled uh, millwright in a shipyard. He hewed ship's timbers. He was very good at it. But when he was 20 years old in 1880, he came down to Anoka, Minnesota to help out his sister, Mary, whose husband, James Hunt, was sick. My grandfather, whose name was James Keeler, came to help out, whereupon his brother-in-law died of tuberculosis, leaving a widow and three small children. And so my grandfather did the honorable thing. And he stayed and he farmed the farm, 160 acres, not very good soil, out in Ramsey Township. He had come down on the train and he did not use his return ticket. He stayed until the three little children were all grown up and, and on their own. And then he went down to the schoolhouse across the road and he asked a young woman named Dora Powell to marry him. She had been flirting with him, so he had some idea that she was interested. And he chased her around the schoolroom and he kissed her, and that sealed the deal. They had no time to waste. He was 46. They married. 
And according to my Aunt Eleanor and my Uncle Lou, the two newlyweds came home in the buggy from the courthouse and they ran into the house and they left the horses hitched to the wagon all night. <laughs> my grandpa loved to read and he was often seen mowing hay, riding on the mower, book in one hand, reins in the other. He carried my grandmother up the stairs to bed every night until he was almost 70. They had eight children. He had a beautiful tenor voice, and his favorite hymn was, O thou in whose presence my soul takes delight, on whom in affliction I call, my comfort by day and my song in the night, my hope, my salvation, my all. He was a man who loved the telephone, and he was on the town board that strung up the first wires in Ramsey Township. He was the first man in the township to go by a Model A Ford, which he drove home and drove into the ditch, yelling, whoa, at the top of his voice. <laughs> he had pulled the steering wheel off the post trying to stop this thing. There's a picture of him at the age of 30. He's young, he's slim, he's got a beautiful mustache. He's standing and holding the reins of his team of horses. And there's another one of him at 65, looking old and worn out, and his hands are all thick and calloused from hard work. His hair is white, his beard is unkempt. This was the year before the house burned down when my aunts and uncles, little children sitting in the schoolhouse across the road, looked out the window and saw flames coming up from the chimney. They always remembered their father raking the ashes, looking for photographs, but they were all gone. They'd all burned up. I heard these stories over and over, and it gave me a sense of citizenship growing up in Anoka, which was fast becoming a suburb of Minneapolis. The thought that my grandfather had come in 1880 meant that even though I was an oddball and didn't fit in, nonetheless, I had a place. My ancestors had come long before and had stayed. They had made their mark. I visited his grave in the cemetery in Anoka often. And now my parents are gone and they are in that same cemetery. And the two people I used to struggle with and whose lives I was obliged to make miserable. <laughs> and I now have copies of their love letters which they never let me see back when I was young. Amazing letters. I thought of my father as a taciturn man, but not in letters he wrote to my mother when he was courting her. A letter in which he says that he got home to Anoka from seeing her in Minneapolis at 3.45 in the morning. What took place? My father, who brought us up to think that nothing good happens after 10 o'clock, 
was out with my mother and didn't get home to Anoka until 3.45 in the morning. And then he tells her this long story about he took two teams of horses up to Aunt Mary's to run a manure spreader, and the manure spreader wasn't hitched up right, and it clipped the horse's heels coming downhill, and they bolted, and they galloped away, and he hung onto the reins, and he got back in the box of a manure spreader with the manure as they galloped a half a mile down the road and, and, and tried to make it into the driveway, and, and it overturned in the ditch, and he leaped from the manure spreader. He told my mother this long story intending to impress her <laughs> with his mortality. And then he winds up the letter saying that he hopes that they can go shopping someday for bedroom furniture. <laughs> what does this mean? The history that moved me most when I was a teenager was the diary of Anne Frank, which I read in the eighth grade, which is the power of one story, one person's story over a mass of statistics. You read this in, at the age of 14 and it moved you, this girl's diary, living with this little band of Jews in the attic up above her father's Pecton warehouse in Amsterdam by the canal during World War II. I saw the secret annex of Anne Frank years later. I was taken there by a Dutch journalist, a man who showed me around, I asked him how much, how he came to know so much about this neighborhood. He said, I grew up here. I went to the school that's just about 100 yards away from Otto Frank's warehouse and the attic. I went to that school, and when I read in her diary, but she sat up there hearing the school bell ring. I was a year older than she. I was in that classroom, and sometimes I rang that bell. That's what made him a journalist, he told me. The discovery that unbeknownst to you, amazing things were happening right in the vicinity, that if you'd known about them, they would have changed your lives. This is what we learn from history. And now here I am. I'm at an age when, when I start to become interesting to historians. <laughs> Myself, a woman wrote to me in the spring and said she had a contract with a publisher to write a biography of me. I wrote back right away saying that I was not interesting enough uh, I had tried to write about myself and I had failed and, uh, and I had to make up a lot of things. <laughs> she wrote back and she begged to disagree with that. And what happens next, I don't know. I suppose I have to cooperate with her because I do want it to be 
an accurate book, of course. I would also like it to be emotionally generous, um, <laughs> but she has not uh, committed to that <laughs> idea. A Prairie Home Companion celebrated its 40th anniversary, as was mentioned uh, this summer, and uh, in anticipation of that, we went through our files and we brought in an archivist to arrange things. And uh, I looked at some of them, papers, old letters, correspondence, old tapes, cassette tapes from back in the 70s. Thank God they disintegrate. And <laughs> they will soon vanish from the face of the earth. They can't vanish soon enough for me. I looked at some things I felt an urge to put through the shredder. Nothing scandalous, worse than scandalous, they were just really tedious. Uh, attempts to write sketch comedy, uh, early attempts. I, I, I destroyed a lot of it. I, I found two long, angry letters I had written to the editor of the local paper protesting a story they had written about me. And to read it all these years later was absolutely humiliating, <laughs> just the, the ingratitude of it, the, 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 the attitude, the, the, uh, it, was, it, was, it was painful, just utterly painful. If you write angry letters, people, make them short, <laughs> two paragraphs maximum, and then destroy them yourself, because eventually you you will want to. I'm old enough to see the world I knew vanishing around me. It's all passing. The, the, I, I went to an Episcopal church out in Norfolk, Virginia, and here in an Episcopal church I saw a man playing a guitar and people singing hymns off a PowerPoint screen, and they were, and they were singing they were singing, Jesus, you've been so good to me. Jesus, you've been so good to me. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Jesus, you've been so good to me. And people all stood and they had their hands up in the air. They didn't look like Episcopalians at all. They were, <laughs> they were trying to be Baptists. It was, they, but the place was packed. And, Young people, I guess, don't care for the old Victorian hymns. They're too churchy, they're too formal or something. But when my old friend Bill Hinckley, the guitarist, was dying of leukemia at the VA hospital in Minneapolis, and I went to visit him once, and he stood up. I had to help him. I was holding onto him by the waist so he wouldn't fall over. And he asked me, my friend, if I knew the words to abide with me, fast falls the even tide, and I said yes, and we sang it together, he and I. I had no idea that he knew this. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's Little day, earth's joys grow dim, its glories 
pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Change and decay in all around I see. Whoever wrote that song had some experience of real life. And it was a comfort, help of the helpless. Abide with me had some comfort to a dying man that Jesus, you've been so good to me, would not have. Jesus, you've been so good to me is not a hymn, it's a jingle. It's a jingle for a toothpaste named Jesus. And the thought that my fellow Episcopalians would go for this cotton candy over potatoes and onions is enormously discouraging. I go sometimes to colleges and, and, I, and I like to get people to sing. I talk about America as a country where we all know the words to the same songs. And so, and so we sing, we sing, uh, oh say can you see, we sing my country tis of thee, America the beautiful, beautiful for spacious skies. We sing all of these songs and when I go to colleges now, more and more, I look out into this crowd of young people and I see them holding up their cell phones where they have Googled the battle hymn of the Republic. <laughs> Teachers my age taught these kids in grade school and they did not teach them Julia Ward Howe's magnificent hymn, the only rousing hymn that northern liberals know. <laughs> much greater than this land is your land, much, much greater. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is so much more amazing. It's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. To not know the words and to have to Look up the words of I've been working on the railroad, not to have learned about Dinah in the kitchen <laughs> and strumming on the banjo. Instead, teachers my age brought up these kids to think that they were creative, and so they encouraged these kids to write lousy songs <laughs> where they could have had beautiful poetry in their minds, change and decay, and all around I see I'm 72. And yet, I go up to Anoka, Minnesota, a week ago Friday. I go up for the football game at the old stadium, Goodrich Field. I sit in the bleachers, and I'm overwhelmed by all of these teenagers sitting around me who are so goofy and wonderful and happy in ways that we were not in the 1950s. We were a solemn, self-conscious bunch. We were trying to be 45 years old when we were 17. Why, I do not know, but we were. And here, all around me, this cheering section, 400 kids there in the bleachers, just above the cheerleaders, just above the band, which was led by a very energetic young woman with blonde hair and a French braid playing the same rouser I used to sing when I was 17, I'm 72. I sit with all of these kids 
They're identified by wearing white, bits of white, white scarves, white shirts, one, two, three boys in off-the-shoulder white togas. Some of them have painted their faces white. They have white glitter on their faces. They're loud. They're having a beautiful time. This is not alcohol. I know alcohol. This is not <laughs> alcohol. I've been around alcohol. This is not alcohol. This is hormones. This is happiness. And at the end of the game, they pour down out of the stands. They pour down 400 kids around a 72-year-old alumnus. They pour down onto the field yelling and waving their hands. And they run out to the middle of the field. And they throw themselves into a big heap out there. And they sing, they sing the rouser. It's so beautiful. It's so happy. If this is what it's like to be young nowadays, I am in favor of this. I can forgive them for not knowing the words. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. I walk off the, out of the field in this flood of young people in white, and the buses are there waiting for them, kids around yelling and whooping it up. And, 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 and I'm in Anoka. This is my history. All around me, up there on Jefferson Street is the first house my parents lived in when they were first married. Up there is the old post office. Now it's a bunch of little boutique shops, but back then it was where my father first went to work for the post office after he got married in 1938, before he went off to the, went off to the army. Up here is my old high school, full of memories, a warehouse of memories. All these people I knew, this familiar town from which I turned and twisted out the stories of Lake Wobegon from these people. It's all around me here, and here I stand. I'm 72 years old. I'm in the midst of all of this youth, all of this raw happiness, a whole gang of hundreds of young people, none of whom have any idea who I am, and this makes me so happy, <laughs> so happy. It's like Robert Frost once said, Robert Frost said, I can sum up in three words, he said, all I have learned about life, it goes on. Thank you. They're streaming out. I see them streaming out. Go buy my book. Go buy my book. Man, how do you follow that? All right. I need just real quick because we all have shared experiences here. Uh, of course, you know, someone's in the kitchen with Dinah, right? We know that one. How many people closed their eyes as they were listening to him and imagined listening to it through the radio? Please, please share this moment with me. It was like, oh, my God, he's here standing in front of me. Two things, three things. Number one, don't forget, $75 
for the 75th anniversary, two floors down. Number two, straight out this door, uh, Garrison Keeler has some books for sale. Third thing, if you're going to the historic house lunch, take a right out of here and go across the Skyway. Lunch is off-site at another place. Thank you very much.
think I am. Those who learn to collaborate and improve.
check, 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 check. What would you do? Well, I was hitting. I was sitting there hitting that. Check, 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 check. One, one, one. 